Aloha. Welcome to the conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. All aboard, we check on ridership numbers for rail now that we're well into the school year. And aside from our first stalled car train this month, what more can we expect from Skyline Operations? We head up country to check on burn properties and the progress on cleanup in Kula Maui. On the long view, we talk about aging in office. How old is too old? What makes a wise sage? When is it time to go? Exit stage left. And the beginnings of a garden. We get you into the time machine and introduce you to Queen's Hospital's first medical chief and botanist extraordinaire, Dr. William Hildebrand. It is drama underneath the trees. back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been about four months since Skyline opened its train doors to paying passengers. At the time, there were more riders on weekends compared to weekdays, but we're told that trend appears to be reversing now that students are back in the classroom. This morning, we have John Ochi, the city's deputy transportation director, joining us live. Good morning, John. Morning, Catherine. Yeah, so, so tell us about the numbers. So right now, we're seeing about an average of about 3,400 passengers on a weekday. And yes, you're absolutely correct that the ridership has inverted from what we've seen in the beginning when we first opened, where we used to have more riders on the weekends than we did on the weekdays. But we found a pretty dedicated ridership base that, that does utilize Skyline on a daily basis and has grown the ridership on our weekdays. And I imagine that that's tied to a lot of the university uh, students, uh, you know, taking advantage of the, the rail uh, stations that are out there. Definitely. You know, we, we checked our ridership as it coincided with the opening of classes for the whole UH system. And prior to that, we had about 2,800 or 2,900 riders on, a, on an average weekday. But now we've landed at that 3,400 figure about, and that gets us about a 17% increase since the University of Hawaii um, opened up for classes. And we, while we do know that a lot of them are using it for Leeward Community College and University of Hawaii West Oahu, there are also some students that are utilizing a combination of Skyline and Route A on the bus to, to reach the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Well, I mean, that's good because that obviously will take a few uh, cars off the road for the um, early morning commute. Definitely. And, you know, we look at it as just long-term building ridership. And it's not only the University of Hawaii students that are utilizing the system. Um, We've had the ability to get out there on Skyline and have identified a lot of people that um, have, you know, they've made Skyline a part of their regular day. And for those that that write it, we have some very high satisfaction from them. Well, you know, I was on a trip recently, and uh, when I was in Denver, I was going to take the uh, train to my hotel, and I was told, oh, you don't have to pay. This month it's free because the city was trying to encourage more people to just give it a go. Are we, you know, can we do something like that to get ridership up, offer more free days like we did at the start? Yeah, um, so at the start, we did do, um, you know, we had a, a free period where Skyline and the bus system and the hand event system uh, was free. Um, that was between uh, June 30th and July uh, 4th. Um, we have some restrictions that we can by city ordinance. You know, we, the, we have to limit the amount of revenue lost to a certain amount. But we do want to work with our city council um, at an appropriate time to see if we can do another free period to just get people to try transit. Okay, so, so that's, that's possible. And then, you know, uh, because we're getting into the holidays and, you know, uh, classes will be out on, on break. Um, I don't know. You'll see the ridership, you think, go up? Uh, you know, people out there shopping? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, what's really cool about the current alignment, while some might say it's too short in its first 11 miles, there are a lot of retail opportunities along 
skyline. In fact, if you look at most of the stations, they do have some very good connections to a, a lot of um, places to shop and, and dine. Um, what we've seen, too, is when we've extended hours of skyline, we have seen a ridership bump, uh, most notably, you know, when we did have a larger scale event at the stadium, we had the, the Megabone, we, we took on an extra thousand people on the system. So based on that, we are looking at um, increasing uh, the service hours, likely for um, maybe the weekend of following Thanksgiving, so the, the traditional Black Friday uh, shopping rush. Oh, that soon? Uh, yeah, um, we we have to. We are looking into it, though. We okay. we may do it just for the weekend, um, just given how people tend to shop. Do, now, does that uh, ha- require council approval at all, or you can just set the schedule? Um, we we can just set the schedule. So we just like we do in our bus system. We always like to do you know provide service where we think there's going to be an extra demand or an extra bump in ridership. And so we know that a lot of people like to get out there and shop right following Thanksgiving. And one of the things that we we look at is not only the people that are going to go shopping, but we we've heard that it is very difficult to find parking at a lot of the major shopping destinations for the employees that work there. And you know what what with everyone having such a hard time filling labor positions and filling, you know, just jobs in the retail sector and in the dining sector. We want to make it as easy as we can for all of the people who do have to work to serve our communities during that time to make it as easy as possible for them to access their jobs. And now what if we have another hiccup like we saw earlier this month with the train stalling out? Well, what can you tell us? Did you get to the bottom of what caused that? Yeah, so the the good news about the, the first service interruption we've had in four months um, the the good news is that all the systems worked to promote the the maximum amount of safety, and they worked as they were designed. We had a out of service train coming from the Halava station with no passengers on board, um, just destined to return back to our Skyline Rail maintenance facility right near Leeward Community College. And as it approached and um, crossed over to a different track at the Kalawao Pro Ridge station. The system detected at the passenger screen gates uh, an intrusion, and therefore, you know, if anything, if our system thinks that anything may have fallen onto the tracks or gotten past the passenger screen gates, the first thing in terms of safety our trains will do is stop. So we happened to stop right as we were going through the, the crossover, and that led to some some issues that we had to work to resolve for our very first uh, service interruption. But, you know, we rehearsed what happens in case we do have these interruptions, and we quickly and timely instituted a bus bridge to get our Skyline riders around the, the affected area. And we were overall very pleased with, you know, the investment we made into training, such that when these, do, when these off events do happen, that all of our personnel, both on our rail and bus side, work together as a team to um, mitigate the interruption. And I have to ask you, because, uh, you know, bathrooms were an issue when you first, first opened, and uh, when I was on my trip, I took BART this summer and happened to notice that there was an attendant at some of the bathrooms, and so I did talk with them, and they said, yeah, it was something new that they were instituting, because they, they shut down their bathrooms also a long time ago, so would we do anything like that here? You know, I think I want to clarify first, Catherine. You know, when you say bathrooms were an issue for us when before we opened, it was more that, you know, certain members of the media made it an issue. We had every intent to make our restrooms available to any passenger that, um, you know, needed to use the facilities. And, you know, we can prove that out. Like, you know, and I like to show people this, you know, when we go into the stations, you know, the accusation that was kind of levied against us was that we were we were only designing this for our employees, and nothing could be further from the truth. We've had pretty much a 10-year-old policy that bathrooms would be made available for passengers who required them, and what I like to show people is, is if we only made this for our employees, when you open up and look in the bathroom, we have amenities such as a changing table and other things that, you know, really do indicate that we had every intention that, you know, a uh, person, a passenger needing to use the restroom would be would be offered the opportunity to okay. do so. Okay, so, so anybody riding who needs uh, to go uh, can just ask an attendant and they will help you out. 
That's correct. Okay. All right. And uh, gosh, but having an attendant actually manning the bathrooms there, that's probably not needed at this time, yeah? Not at this time. Okay. All right. Um, well, I, I, I'm glad that uh, uh, ridership is up <laughs> because that's our tax dollars at work. And I guess it's just a matter of getting more people to try it to see if it'll work for their commute. Uh, and then we just have to stay tuned to see if uh, you extend the hours in for the holidays. Absolutely, yeah. We're 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 currently working on that right now, so we'll probably have some some news to report on that very soon. And we welcome everybody on board the system. You know, even with kids out, Sharkiki haven't been on Skyline. You know, we really are building this for the next generation. Might be a good time to take a little field trip, take a little excursion, get out there, support our local economy. And you know, a lot of the small businesses along the alignment have expressed to us that they are grateful for the extra passengers and foot traffic that they do see since we've opened Skyline. All right. Okay. Well. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. That was City Deputy Transportation Director John Ouchi giving us an update on rail ridership. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today we're celebrating the life and talent of Hawaii Opera Theater's first Hawaiian director, the late Henry Akina. Hawaii's history with opera dates back to the 1850s. Queen Emma herself sang in the chorus of Verdi's uh, Travatore, while her husband, King Kamehameha IV, served as stage manager. Today, Hawaii Opera Theater carries on that tradition, and that's where Akina served as artistic director for 20 years before retiring. During his time working with HOT, he guided them uh, through more than 120 operas, including Tristan and Isolde, Don Carlo, and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Akina once said, the opera is but one art form where we can go beyond everyday life to look at some of its mythologies and gain insight into the lives of other characters and thus into our own. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name the Offenbach opera that Akina directed as his finale for Hawaii Opera Theater in 2017? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat has to do with 911 dispatchers. On the line today, Christina Jedra. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes. So, you know, we all know how hectic it can be for 911 dispatchers, radio dispatchers, and you're focused on the Lahaina fire specifically. Right. So the night of the Lahaina fire, the Maui Police Department had really a tiny team of 911 dispatchers who were given essentially an impossible task. There were eight of them. They started the day with four, and they fielded 4,200 calls coming in between the hours of 3.30 and 5.30 at every 28 seconds. So every 28 seconds, a new call was coming in from frantic people asking how to evacuate, what to do, if the fire was coming towards them. And these dispatchers did the best they could with very limited resources and limited time. But in the end, a lot of the callers' questions were left unanswered. Well, you know, we often hear about, you know, what great stress they're under just on a normal day. And this was extraordinary. 
Right. Even on a good day, they're extremely understaffed and, frankly, underpaid. They are listed as clerks under the government's designation, so they collectively bargain with other people who answer calls. But I think many people would agree that 911 dispatchers are taking very different calls under very different circumstances. And so now there's an effort to to redesignate them as first responders and get paid as such. But as it is, yeah, the pay is not so good. They have a 70% vacancy rate on Maui for 911 dispatchers. There's supposed to be 39. There's only 12. And they're not all working at the same time. So these folks are really stretched thin. And, of course, when you put so much responsibility on such a small team, there's things that fall through the cracks and information gets lost. You just can't expect these people to be able to do everything. And over the years, you know, we've all requested 911 tapes for various Mm -hmm. news incidents that we cover. But, you know, when uh, they released those radio dispatch calls, I mean, gosh, talk about grace under pressure. It's just amazing, you know, how they just hold up in those situations. Absolutely. Yeah, they're getting calls from frantic people who are terrified and in that situation aren't always the best at articulating the information that dispatchers are listening for. So the dispatcher has to interrupt them. And sometimes it may sound rude in the context of like a normal conversation, but they're just trying to get the information they need to pass on to first responders to help save people. The unfortunate thing about this fire, though, is that it wasn't like a normal structure fire where they could dispatch a fire truck to every person who called saying they needed a rescue. A lot of people were in a position where they had to save themselves. And so our Maui dispatchers were not necessarily trained on how to help people to do that. There are protocols designed after the California Tubbs fire in 2017 that um, other jurisdictions use to help people save themselves. So Maui didn't have that at the time of our August fires, but now they're looking at it. Well, you know, the whole idea of treating them as first responders seems logical. I mean, I know they've been pushing for that, but, you know, you would think that after this, they would see the value of the service that they provide. Right. Just earlier this year, legislation to redesignate dispatchers as first responders and to allow them to collectively bargain that way, it passed in the Hawaii House. Unfortunately for them, it did die in the Senate, but I would expect after all of this, perhaps that legislation will have more momentum in the upcoming session. Yeah, I think the argument that they go above and beyond a a clerk position, you you could raise a, a valid argument about that. Right. And I spoke with one former Maui dispatcher who really loved her job but had to quit after a year. She just couldn't make 12-hour shifts overnight work for her family and for her well-being, especially when the starting salary is about $45,000. She said, you know, I don't think that the pay is worth the job that we're doing. She said, we are the first first responders. Yes. And very often it is a life and death situation. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, an interesting light cast on uh, those uh, folks who answer the call when all of us have to call in an emergency and call 911. But thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Christina Jedra. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. the Army Corps of Engineers will be making themselves available to talk to media about cleanup concerns and the progress in clearing properties of toxic materials there in Kula. Um, HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us this morning. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so you were able to connect with them about um, just some of the concerns that residents have. I was. So I talked to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who was leading the upcountry fire debris cleanup process that began last week. They're cleaning up 22 properties in total in upcountry Maui, and that's based on receiving rights of entry from property owners, which is kind of like the property owners opting into this cleanup program. And the cleanup program is designed to uh, obviously remove the toxic waste and ash uh, material from house sites that burned and also 
speed up the process that it will allow folks to rebuild their homes. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has completed two uh, removal sites already as of yesterday, and the process is ongoing. Uh, it sounds like it'll be going until about mid-December. Here is Corey Coger, Army Corps of Engineers debris subject matter expert, explaining the cleanup process. We began what we call phase two debris removal up in upcountry in Kula on Tuesday of last week. And that includes um, mobilizing to the site, establishing a, an exclusion zone outside of the ash footprint, and then um, physically removing uh, recyclable material first. Typically, we take the metal and the concrete, we rinse that on site, and then that's taken to recyclers to the extent that we can. And then the ash and debris that's left over that can't be recycled is under wet methods, so with misters and sprayers, placed into plastic-lined trucks. Once full, those trucks are what, what's called burrito-wrapped, which is basically encapsulated prior to transport to Maui Central Landfill. Once that ash and debris has been removed, we'll excavate six inches of incidental soil that's been impacted by the ash. That's also burrito-wrapped and taken to Maui Central. And then finally, the foundation will be removed and at that point, we'll sample the soil that's left so that we meet the Department of Health residential standards so that folks can rebuild their homes. So this is really a, a very intense, labor-intensive uh, procedure. It is. He says it takes um, typically about three days for a, a house site, but cleanup can take up to 21 days per property if it fails that soil sampling test that he mentioned. So if it fails to meet the Department of Health residential standards, uh, they remove another six inches of soil uh, on top of the first six inches, uh, I guess, until they don't, uh, there's no residual toxic waste left. He says they haven't gotten back the first test results yet from, from those sites that they cleaned last week. But after they finish the upcountry cleanup process, they will be moving on to a similar process in Lahaina, which he estimates will begin in mid-January. So right now they're waiting on construction of a temporary debris site in West Maui while the county builds a new disposal site at the west at the uh, central Maui landfill that he mentioned. So uh, in Kula, residents are happy that this cleanup process is finally happening, but they say the communication has been lacking about what's going on with the cleanup process and really just over the last three months in general. Kyle Ellison of Kula has been a leader in his community's recovery efforts and he shares some of those challenges. The communication has been pretty much non-existent and that's what's been very hard is that there were many meetings that were held. Most of them were exclusively invite only to homeowners of properties that burned. And I went to many of those meetings and even then it was hard to get any actionable information to go off of. And throughout the entire thing, it's been like, no, we don't really have a means of communicating with you when we're going to be at your property. And people are just shaking their head being like, well, it's my house. I'd like to be there when you're scooping it up. And then it turned into, okay, well, we will give you 72 hours notice, but it's your responsibility to tell the neighbors. We'll give you 72 hours notice, but then you got to let everyone around you know. So we're kind of like, how can we tell anyone if they maybe want to sleep elsewhere, if they have any concerns about being right next to this ash that's been proven to be very toxic with high levels of arsenic and lead? If people don't feel comfortable sleeping right next door while that's being removed, we need to be able to give them some heads up about when it's going to be taking place. Literally just in the last two days, we kind of have finally gotten more of what we've been asking for. But it's taken an extreme struggle to get to that point. Yeah, he sounds very frustrated. Yeah, so Ellison points out one of the big differences, of course, between what's going on in upcountry and Lahaina since the wildfires is officials keep talking about re-entry into burn zones. So, of course, for Lahaina, folks have been uh, slowly able to go back to their, their homes that are burned. But Ellison says in upcountry, residents never left. They've been living right next to homes that have burned since August 8th. And so he said there's kind of a disconnect sometimes in the language that officials are using and kind of a lack of understanding of what's really been the challenges of upcountry residents who are still living right in this burn zone. That's raising health concerns. And uh, as Ellison says, highlighting a lack of data and information that's been shared with the upcountry community. Here's Ellison again explaining. 
There's a lot of unease and anxiety surrounding the fact that they have been sleeping right next door to a burned home site for three months. What may or may not have happened with their body during those three months, what they have been inhaling, there's a complete and utter lack of any information whatsoever at all. That's more on the Department of Health side, which is kind of frustrating and concerning. Maybe everyone's fine. Maybe there's no problem at all. Or maybe there's a really big problem. But without any data, we don't know. They deserve to have access to just knowing what have we been breathing? What damage has already been done? Can we do some soil sampling? Can we develop a a map of soil sampling within a mile radius of the burned scar area and then be able to develop a map of how effective the soil health is? There's this total vacuum of information right now of anything regarding health for the land, for the people living here. There's just nothing to go off of other than the actual ash itself, which has been tested. Now, I know the health department has said that, you know, they have put in a, a bunch of monitors and I think the Department of Education, same thing. They've added monitors. Uh, I think it's some schools in, I think, Molokai and Lanai just to test the air. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's probably why the Army Corps is being available to talk to media to, uh, today or tomorrow, I should say, um, just because a lot of people have questions. Yes, exactly. So the Army Corps of Engineers has installed air monitors around the sites that they are doing the cleanup uh, currently, and those are to monitor the air quality for employees and folks that are directly working on that. So that may be reassuring to residents. Um, And Ellison referred to ash samples that were tested from Kula. Preliminary results were released on October 15th, and those did show extremely elevated levels of arsenic as well as um, levels of cobalt and lead that were all above action levels. And so that's really concerning for people. They say there hasn't really been much uh, updates from the Department of Health since then. When I contacted the department to ask them, you know, is it safe for families in Kula to be living right next to burned homes right now? And so far, no one has answered that question for me. So there are uh, Meetings that will be held starting weekly, uh, from what the county is saying now, uh, for upcountry residents to help improve communications, which uh, hopefully will be a good thing. Um, upcountry Council Member Yukile Sugimura said that the P- Department of Health will be attending at least one of those meetings upcoming, so hopefully folks will be able to get some questions answered directly from them as well. Yeah, you want to allay people's fears. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HPR's Catherine Kluett-Pactel with the progress of the wildfire cleanup in Kula. You can um, read her stories on Maui County on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the University of Hawaii Foundation, connecting donors to UH's 10 campuses statewide to help prepare Hawaii's residents for Hawaii's jobs. Learn more at uhfoundation.org. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, Tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Accounting program. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. at the two leading candidates for the 2024 presidential race. Is their age hurting their popularity among voters? Contributing editor Neil Milner joins us for The Long View to talk about whether age should be a consideration for candidates running for office. Good morning. Good morning. So how old are you? (laughs) You're not running for office. Let's just say my bar mitzvah was many years ago. Well, you know, I've heard so many stories lately about, yeah, President Biden's age. And people say, well, and, you know, uh, 
Mr. Trump isn't that far behind him either. Well, let's just very briefly say what the polls show. The polls show that age is really hurting uh, President Biden. Um, you, you know, all these things are mixed with other factors, a low approval rate and so on. But with some key groups, for example, a recent poll showed that 78% of young voters who are very, you know, it's very uh, important to get young voters involved from a tactical standpoint because they're kind of unreliable. They're not the ones who are most likely to vote automatically. 78% of them think Biden is too old. But anyway, this has been around for a while. It's been more of an issue in this campaign because uh, of various things that have happened. But I, I want to just start out by pointing out two things very quickly that help set the tone. One is a uh, New Yorker magazine cover from early October shows uh, four p- famous politicians, Pelosi, Trump, McConnell, and Biden using walkers, working pretty hard, and it's called running for office. Oh, it's a great vision. It's a great vision, but you should feel a little guilty, according to the critics, for saying it's a great vision, right? Because ageism. We don't, yeah, we don't, ageism and ableism. Uh, and that's what some of the letters to the editor said in the New Yorker that one, none of these people use walkers. Uh, it was used to show stigmatism, stigmatism, a, a stereotype, a stigma. It was used as an example of saying if you use a walker, your mental competence is, is that is associating physical incompetence or the disability with mental incompetence. So. There is that kind of thing that's around all the time where we're less likely to want to categorize people by age, even though, by the way, public opinion wants us to, and we'll get back to that in a second. But this has become a polarizing issue, and I want you to listen to one minute of an exchange between U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. This is at a Senate hearing, and a congressman from Texas named Troy Neal. We now have President Biden in office for 18 months. And just recently, we now see the mainstream media questioning President Biden's mental state and for good reason. Sadly, he shakes hands with ghosts and imaginary people. He falls off bicycles. Even at the White House Easter celebration, the Easter Bunny had to guide him back into his safe place. Cue cards that say sit here or end of speech, which he actually states, that is, if he stays awake. So my question for you is, sir, have you spoken with any other cabinet members about implementing the 25th Amendment on President Biden? First of all, I'm glad to have a president who can ride a bicycle. And I will look beyond the the insulting nature of that question and make clear to you that the president of the United States... Have you spoken to any other cabinet members about implementing the 25th Amendment on President Biden? Of course not. Please allow the witness. Have you emailed... This is my time. Have you emailed any members with the the executive branch about the president's health and cognitive decline, including text messages from your private phone? I figured this. What about political appointees at USDOT? Have you spoken about Gentleman's the time has expired. Oh. Yes, well, um, I frankly find the lack of protocol disgusting, but hey, that's just me. But the broader point is that Neil is a, is a Republican congressman from West Texas, I believe. Um, uh, at a time when Congress is coming close to fistfights, as we know over the weekend, it's not all that surprising that a serious political issue becomes a kind of showboat political issue. And it reflects the sort of polarization that we have. So you have, on the one hand, a kind of measured criticism of the aging notion. And on the other hand, you have this kind of making it into what really is a circus. But bottom line is where we are right now is that it's a serious issue. It's a particularly serious issue for Biden. Um, It's a serious issue that is hurting him at the polls, and it's not helping Donald Trump either. Um, So this is where we are now. So let's talk about more measured ways to talk to deal with this issue of oldness. 
And what some people have suggested, uh, uh, Nikki Haley has suggested this publicly when she ran, when she's running for the presidency, um, is that there should be some kind of mental competency test for every politician over 75. I should say that, uh-oh, that number is pretty close to what Donald Trump, her opponent in the in the, for the nomination, he's 77. But the point of it is that there is a movement in that direction to say, look, let's not just automatically say age is the thing, but if you're over 75, there ought to be a mental competency test. What does that mean? That's where then, if you go down that road of mental competency, you raise all kinds of interesting and complicated questions about what does it do and how do you use it? Well, you know, I think there is some uh, valid, you know, reason for concern because we saw Mitch McConnell just kind of blank out yes. twice yes. Uh, in, a, in a short space of time. And that, that was very distressing. You know, I mean, immediately you just, you, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, did he have a stroke? So you're really concerned for his health. No, that's true. And, and what, what's complicated things over the years as we've learned more about aging is two things, one of which is that aging is a much more complex process in both good and bad ways than we used to think. You don't just turn into a geezer where you then, you know, don't do anything but, I don't know, whittle. Uh, but you, that, that you may lose some cognitive skills and some reasoning skills, but you pick up other kinds of things. Uh, wisdom, uh, the ability to tolerate certain kinds of uh, serious trauma, actually. By, this, by the same token, we've seen what happens with, with older politicians. So the, one of the best things, and, and you, you see I, I have a link to this on the site, is Greg Gansky, who is a former Republican congressman, a kind of moderate Republican congressman from uh, the Des Moines area, sort of the suburbs of Des Moines, was a plastic surgeon, and I think a pretty good one from what I can read. Plus, he was a member of Congress. And Gansky says, look, I think about politicians the way I think about surgeons, that some Surgeons can go on for a long period of time. Dubakey, Dr. Dubakey, one of the pioneering heart surgeons, stayed on till he was 91. Gansky said, I quit at about 67 because I felt I was losing the skills. So, and, and he gives a very informed argument about how why surgeons want to stay on, which is very much like why politicians want to stay on. It's their life, they think that they're good, they're afraid of other things. What Gansky does is to say there ought to be a mental status exam. I'm not so sure because I don't know what that means and I don't know how there would be one. But if I just add this one thing, we have strict age limits for certain kinds of occupations like pilots. It's not all that clear. It's probably not true that a 75-year-old pilot couldn't still pilot a plane. But we've made a policy decision using a blunt instrument as age. Harder to do for politics. Um, Gansky says we should do it. There should be some kind of way of having mental status. But then the question becomes, what do you do with the exam? Can you require it? And, and, and so on. So it's, it's in limbo because of the the seriousness of the issue, the visibility of the issue. Right, right. And I uh, would be remiss because Bill Dorman, who trolls Asia <laughs> yes. uh, 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 media, says that there was a prime minister of Malaysia who yes. retired at 78, and then he got back into office as prime minister at the age of 93, and he finally resigned in 95. So I, I think he probably played major league baseball for those 15 yeah. years between <laughs> there 90. You so I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that The Onion, the humor magazine, has a test that they developed. Could you pass this test okay. if you're over 75? So and, head that uh, way and take the test. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Neil. Yeah. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner. We'll have links to the articles and video he referenced on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring lead certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com. 
the mistrust was there from the moment the disaster happened. On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, Maui's fires have left pain and loss, and for some, a fear private land may end up in the hands of the government. It's happened once before. What's to say it's not going to happen again? Available Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And earlier in the show, we got the latest on ridership numbers from Honolulu Skyline. The elevated platforms of the rail system are a great place to spot the soaring Mano Oku, which is the Skyline's mascot of sorts. And today's Mano Minute, thanks to the Mkali Library uh, at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, we've got these recordings. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. Manuoku, also known as white terns or fairy terns, are a medium-sized native Hawaiian seabird that can also be found in many tropical and subtropical oceans throughout the world. They have black bills and their feathers are completely white, except for a black ring of feathers around their eyes, which makes their dark eyes look much bigger than they actually are. Like many other seabirds, they have long, narrow wings with pointed wingtips that allow them to effortlessly soar for hours or days over the ocean looking for food, which for them is primarily small fish and squid. Manuoku translates to bird of ku, the god of war and prosperity in Hawaiian mythology. Seafarers and traditional Hawaiian navigators use Manuoku as one of the best indicators of land, as these birds typically fly out to forage on the ocean in the early morning and return by nightfall. Manuoku had become very rare by the middle of the last century in the main Hawaiian Islands, but their populations have grown. Interestingly, they have a special fondness for Honolulu, and they're one of the only native Hawaiian birds that can commonly be found soaring, nesting, and vocalizing in and around that city. In 2007, they were even named the official bird of Honolulu. So if you live in Honolulu and hear this outside your window, There's a Manuoku nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and Kama'aina for 30 years. More information at hawaii-forest.com. It's time to sing the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we tested you on the legacy of the late Henry Aquina. Aquina grew up on Oahu and was a skilled musician, able to play the flute, piano, and violin. He graduated from Punahou School, where he indulged his love for theater and was the president of the Punahou Playmakers. After attending Tufts University in Massachusetts, he went to Germany to pursue an opera career. In 1981, he co-founded the Berlin Chamber Opera Company and went on to create productions in France, China, and the U.S. He returned home in the 1990s to become Hawaii Opera Theater's first Hawaii director. Throughout his lifetime, he received numerous accolades and was honored by the state legislature. He retired from the Hawaii Opera Theater in 2017 after directing his final opera, Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And Akina sadly passed away earlier this month. He was 68 years old. And thanks uh, to Gene Chiller for um, suggesting this backyard quiz. And our winner today, Dorette from Honolulu, a first-time caller. That's our quiz. If you have uh, one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
many of us in our Honolulu, you may pass by Foster Botanical Gardens on your daily commute into town or regularly visit Queen's Medical Center, but you may not fully appreciate the connection between the two downtown sites. Well, this weekend, among the exceptional trees at the City Botanical Garden, you'll be treated to the backstory, or like arborists like to say, the understory. Local thespian Craig House brings to life the character of botanist and Queen's physician William uh, Hildebrand. It was Hildebrand who we talked with in our studios yesterday. Good afternoon, my friends, or aloha, as we say here in Hawaii. I am so happy to see such an interest in my garden and surprised that many of you have expressed an interest in my life as well and how I came to be the owner of this tropical paradise so far away from the land of my birth. It is hard to believe that I have passed 20 years in these lovely islands, and that now, in this year of 1871, I am preparing to depart for my homeland. I cannot remember a time when I did not love plants, trees, and everything about the natural world that we live in. I was born in Prussia in 1821, in the small town of Nieheim, Westphalia. My father was a respected judge in the court of the nearby city of Paderborn. And it seems that my parents, who had buried two daughters in the Nieheim graveyard, vowed on the day I was born that I would become a physician. I had a very happy childhood roaming through the fields and forests that surrounded our little town with my three younger brothers. <laughs> we would catch tadpoles or collect watercress. And on clear days, we would climb the old watchtower that looked out toward the ancient and mysterious Tutteberger forest where we would dream about adventures in faraway lands. And Dr. Hillebrand, you had quite an adventure here in the islands. Quite a number, actually. Uh, I was able to be a doctor, but also able to entertain my passion for botany. <laughs> and as the chief physician at Queen's, Queen's Medical Center is graced with a number of trees that you brought over to the islands. Tick down a few on the list. Well, I first should mention that uh, although I am, in fact, the chief physician at Queen's, I am also the only physician at Queen's. Uh, as for the trees, I had those imported and introduced. Um, have you seen the two Bombax specimens there? <laughs> Their showy pink and white blossoms yes. are a favorite with Queen Emma. Uh, One of my favorites. <laughs> the baobab tree is doing very well. There's the kapok and the date palm and the royal palm and the monkey pod tree, which I think is very well suited to our islands. Perhaps the best known of my trees, though, is the frangipani or plumeria, which I introduced 10 years ago. And many of these trees stand majestic over at Foster Gardens, which is where you used to live? That was where my wife Anna and I made our home in 1855, and I expanded over the years to contain my dare I say, magnificent garden. Your collection. My collection. Uh, beautiful and useful specimens. Uh, that is where I have uh, my magnificent earpod tree and my tropical almond and kapox as well. And I happened to be at Foster Gardens a few years ago when uh, there was a coming to life of many characters of your time. Uh, Mary Foster, for whom the gardens are named for, and Harold Lyon, who Lyon Arboretum is named for. Well, I was very familiar with Mary Foster because I ultimately sold our property to the Fosters, her husband Thomas and uh, Mrs. Foster, who had a great love for gardens and plants and all the natural world. I left Hawaii in 1871 and returned to Germany and sadly uh, never returned. Well, you also worked with the monarchy. You were able to travel and I think we were responsible for bringing in uh, workers from Portugal. I was actually assigned by the Hawaiian government to travel for two years for three purposes. One was for the importation of laborers. Uh, I was responsible for signing up 528 Chinese laborers in Hong Kong, so was involved in the first uh, large migration of Chinese laborers to Hawaii. Much later, I was involved in uh, the arrival of the Portuguese, but by that point, I had actually already arrived back in Germany and facilitated it from there. 
One of my other assignments on the two-year trip I took to Asia was to bring back useful plants and animals. So among the plants that I brought back at that time were camphor, uh, cinnamon, jackfruit, uh, lychee, eugenias, banyan, uh, mandarin orange, uh, Chinese plum, uh, java plum, and many, many other plants as well. Uh, I also brought back birds and deer. Well, I thank you because I have some of those trees in my yard. And it's just really interesting to learn about how these plants came to be here in the islands. Did you have any particular favorites? I was very fond of the flowering plants uh, because they were also useful. Um, I uh, was very happy to encourage the planting of shade trees over the streets of Honolulu. The town was dry and dusty when I first got here. So I was very involved in bringing in the shower trees, uh, the African tulip tree, and the plumeria tree, although not a great shade tree, uh, still was one that has proved to be very, very popular. Yes, the laymakers love it. <laughs> yes. And and the people who uh, who buy lay from the lay sellers. Thank you. And so this weekend, you will be among friends under the trees at Foster Botanical Garden. Yes, I'm very happy to return after a rather long absence. And so, so tell us about what visitors to the garden can expect. Uh, first of all, the lovely environment of the garden, which is always a pleasure. Um, but on this particular weekend, uh, through means I don't quite understand, uh, we will actually have in succession the three people who have been most responsible for creating, nurturing, and presenting the garden to the people of Hawaii. Um, I started the garden and uh, then passed that garden on to the Fosters and Mary Foster, who did a remarkable job of maintaining it and eventually deeding it to the city of Honolulu. Uh, it was then taken over by Harold Lyon, who did a great job of maintaining the garden and protecting it from development and other ideas that the city might have had in mind for turning it into something very different from what it was. Um, all three of us will be there and in a relatively short form tell the stories of our own engagement with the place and Hawaii in general. So if we want to see a living museum uh, and catch a glimpse of some of our history, the folks should make a point of, uh, of signing up, of registering. Uh, that would be a very good idea. Uh, I would just like to assert, though, that we are not artifacts or museum pieces, but in fact, uh, lively and, I hope, interesting individuals with a great deal of information to share. This is often, I gather, referred to as a living history presentation which usually means that it is site-specific. Um, the real attraction here is the garden, as it always is. What we are providing is in some ways a kind of historical guided tour of the garden. Um, those who choose to visit us will be actually standing in the garden. Uh, they will be moving from place to place because each of us is standing in one of our favorite spots. So in addition to being a dramatic performance of a kind, it is also, to a degree, a guided tour through the garden. So anybody who attends can anticipate an enjoyable and beautiful time in one of Honolulu's greatest treasures. All right. Well, Dr. Hillebrand, we certainly appreciate your time with us this morning. Oh, it has been my pleasure. It is always wonderful to return to Hawaii. And that was a Part of a conversation we had with Dr. William Hillebrand is portrayed by Craig Howes. The Beginning of a Garden is a play among the trees presented by the Friends of Honolulu Botanical Gardens. And our friend Neil Milner reprises his role as Harold Lyon. So look for him and look for links on the conversation page of our website later today to register. And we leave you off with Joni Mitchell, who wrote a song about Hawaii and who was a line about our tree museum at Foster Botanical Gardens. trees, put them in a tree museum, and they charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay fair and dice, put up a parking lot. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we hear more about the efforts to help immigrants dealing with the aftermath of the Maui wildfires. 
got a tree story to share, leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for our archive shows online by searching for the conversation on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.